Hello, hello. Here we are again coming to you from Broadcast Team Alpha on 44 different platforms around the world. And we're going to have some fun tonight because we got a phenomenal guest that has been having some interesting journeys and he's going to be with us to talk about it because we have Brad Olson here returning to Broadcast Team Alpha. And, uh, <clears throat> well, you know, Broadcast Team Alpha is the show for the thinking American and thinking global citizen that is not afraid to step out of the box and uh, find out what is out there. Why are they covering up for us? What are we not supposed to know? Because we find a lot of it. And yes, I'm one of the hosts. My name is Agi and my co-host Nori, she cannot be here tonight. She is on a hospice call. You know, she's a nurse and she's on a hospice call with someone that is just about to go home. And uh, there's some fear involved there. So Nori's uh, soft voice is very much needed. So uh, we will, uh, if she, at the tail end of the show, if she makes it in, we will sure welcome her. Otherwise, she is doing what she needs to do. And uh, we are also transmitting on the uh, the Conscious Awakening Network. And uh, you got to go over there and watch those guys a little bit because Conscious Awakening Network.org. Go over there. I think they got close to about 50 different shows and a lot of other stuff on their website that you can uh, watch besides those shows. They're kind of like us, you know, they also find stuff that you're not supposed to know about. And uh, if you're watching us on YouTube right now, that's the best place to do it because we normally would be uh, uh, watching the chat room. And, uh, of course, Nori might be busy, but uh, Mac, back in the control room, he is going to help us out in the chat room. So uh, we will uh, maybe be able to comment a little bit for you. And uh, also, while you are on the YouTube, Please subscribe if you haven't done it. It helps us a lot. And if you like what you hear, you can also become a member because we have a bunch of videos that the general public do not get to see. And that's in the member section. So I want to say something about uh, Brad. He's been there about two or three or four or five times before. So, uh, yeah, he's an author. He's a lecturer. And uh, he is a speaker on conferences just about everywhere. I think he said he was on coast to coast last night, and he's, he's going a lot of other places to speak of his travels. And uh, he is one of three people I know that has been to Antarctica. And that's, that's a feather in your hat, man. <laughs> so uh, anyway, uh, welcome to the show, Brad. Hey there, Aggie. Thanks for having me on. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Oh, yeah. This is going to be fun. Oh, man. Those travels that you have done lately, I, I said earlier that your next time you go somewhere, just make a little room in one of your suitcases. I want to go with you. I better have a big suitcase then because uh, we'll have to <laughs> smuggle me on through baggage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I'll tell you, we really want to hear about those travels because we talked a little bit before and there's some really interesting stuff. Where where oh, did yeah. you go? Where did you go? Well, I, I was on Coast to Coast a couple nights ago. It wasn't last night. But I came back from Laos not even a week ago and I was there as a, a travel writer for the ASEAN Tourism Forum. But my assignment was with the World Explorer magazine. That's a, a magazine published by David Hatcher Childress, one of the stars mm-hmm. of Ancient Aliens. Yeah, we've been friends for a long time. He's right out there in Arizona, too, which I'll be in five weeks for the Sedona Ascension Retreat up in Sedona. And um, we'll go see David, too, and we'll get this uh, my article published about the Plain of Jars which is a megalithic site in northern part of Laos. Laos is a landlocked country in Southeast Asia. It was part of French Indochina. And during the Indochina Wars, that's what they call the uh, independence movement from France in the 1950s. And then... um, when the U.S. got involved in the 1960s and 1970s, we know it as the Vietnam War. They call it the Second Indochina War. And the Ho Chi Minh Trail, which supplied arms to the Viet Cong in South Vietnam, went right through <laughs> the uh, plateau where the Plain of Jars are. So it was a target for our airline pilots to try to bomb the Ho Chi Minh Trail and and stop that production line, which they were never able to do. It's part of the reasons why America lost the Vietnam War, because yeah. they could not stop personnel and materiel from flowing down from northern Vietnam into the, the battle zone region. But the, the war in Laos, uh, it's called the Secret War in Laos. It was a non-declared war. It was completely illegal. And... The American people did not know about this bombing campaign, nor did Congress, for six years. So the bombing campaign started in 1964, pretty much right with the onset of American involvement in in the Vietnam conflict, and went all the way until 1973. But the American public were not made aware of the bombing until 1970. Wow. Laos is the most bombed nation per capita in the world. That's how bad it was. And even on the plane of jars, and I'll explain what that is all about in a minute, there are all these uh, craters, pockmarks from the bombing campaign. It's still very evident that this war took a drastic toll on Vietnam, or Vietnam Laos, and Cambodia. Um, and there's still unexploded ordinances. Every two weeks, somebody is maimed or killed by one of the unexploded ordinances from that war. So it's 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 quite a catastrophe. But uh, but I tell you, the the people of Laos are I think the friendliest people I've ever met, and they let bygones be bygones, and uh, they've just moved on. Hmm. Wow. Is it that much damage still from that war? Really? Yeah. 
gosh. And I saw it in Vietnam too when I was there in 1993. Big bomb craters, which are duck ponds. There were uh, old derelict army tanks that you could climb on and lift the cannon and drop it. And it goes boing, 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 boing. Climb down in the Chu Chi tunnels, the whole network of underground tunnels. It's a, it's a museum now. But I'll tell you, Augie, the thing that really hit home as an American was the museums. And in Vietnam and Saigon, which is called Ho Chi Minh City now, it's the Museum of American War Atrocities. And in Laos, in the World Heritage City site called Luang Prabang, they have the UXO Museum. That stands for Unexploded Ordinances. And it, too, shows the atrocities of war. I got to tell you, as an American, boy, it just uh, really pulled at my heartstrings. And, and the worst part of it is the American, the U.S. government has done very little to help with the cleanup of all these unexploded ordinances and to help out the people who are still uh, right. named. And there's, there's also diff the new generations that were poisoned. So children that that are just being still born today, second and third generation, because of all the napalm and the Agent Orange yeah, and yeah. herbicides that were dropped. I mean, there's whole areas of Laos that are they're desert uh, because of all this, and mm -hmm. the U.S. has just done very little to help these people out, and that just really. Also, and and that goes uh, into the area where you have those artifacts that you were looking into. So that's that's how the, the tie into the plain of jars. So this high plateau in northern Laos has been a crossroads uh, for for centuries, and it's always been a major trade route. Uh, for salt that came from the Gulf of Tonkin and other trade wares that were going back and forth over this high plateau. And that's why the people became wealthy. And during the Iron Age in Laos, which is 500 BC to 500 AD, for a thousand years, they manufactured these megalithic jars weighing several tons and some of them three meters tall way taller than me and uh big enough to jump in so it was a big mystery what these jars were used for the legend was that they were drinking cups for giants and geez could have been <laughs> you're big enough uh and inside you can see the chisel marks so it certainly they were created during this iron age you needed a stronger metal than the sandstone, or even some of them are made out of granite, really hard stone. Uh, and today there are 1,325 intact jars remaining. But wow. back in the day, there were many thousand. Um, several were lost by Chinese raids coming down to just uh, plunder and treasure seekers. Some of them were filled with grave items. And I'll explain what the, the best theory why they were built. Um, but many also of the jars were destroyed during the Second Indochina War, during the Vietnam War, the secret war on Laos, when they were bombing this area to try to take out the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And a couple direct hits just obliterated the jars or broke them in yeah. pieces. And 
scattered them around. There are even bodies there from the Indochina Wars of, of soldiers who were just uh, were killed in action. And during the, the French conflict in the 1950s, there was actual uh, hand-to-hand combat on the Plain of Jars. And there are still trenches that are evident on the plain where the warfare took place, as well as bullet holes and shrapnel in some of the jars. Mm. Huh. Well, now, were they made of granite, all of them, or were they uh, also metal? Uh, there's no metal involved. The only metal was used to uh, chip them out and carve them and, and put a rim on some of them. And one of them at site one had a petroglyph of a man with his arms over his head. Uh, but that's the only indication of any kind of figure. Yeah. But um, it wasn't just the one. It's called Site One, and there are a couple different locations in Site One, and that's where the World Heritage Museum is um, in the town of Phone Savan on the Zingo Mengao Plateau. And it is uh, it's, it's hard to get there. I took an overnight bus from Luang or from uh, Ventian, the capital, and then I took a, a day bus to Luang Prabang, and the roads are really bad. Boy, that was tough travel. Um, but it was worth it because this is really uh, the premier megalithic site in the country of Laos. And um, World Explorer magazine really wanted me to write an article about it. It hasn't been uh, featured in that magazine before. But these jars, uh, so in the museum, and half the museum is devoted to this secret war in Laos, uh, the two Indochina wars. Uh, the other half is devoted to the archaeological evidence about what they were created for. And there was a French archaeologist in the area during the French colonial days named uh, Colani, and she uh, excavated all around and found near the jars, all around it were these, these burials with uh, neatly stacked bones or bones in an urn that could have only been placed in there when the body had completely decomposed. So she proposed that it was called that the jars were used as a second burial process. So a fully intact, recently deceased body would be placed in the jar and it would just decompose. It would just break down. Animals would get to it and the elements. And, uh, it would then, after it turned to bones, be taken out and then buried around the, the jar. So each jar was like a, a family funeral plot. And Ooh. yeah, and then, and so the, then subsequent burials would uh, accompany the site. Um, but poor commoners were just cremated. And there's a cave at the Plain of Jars at site one. Now there's a dozen other locations with these jars. It's not just one location, but uh, in all directions, you have these megalithic jars. So it's quite a, an interesting site to see and, and explore mm. around this area. It's a beautiful area, part of Laos. Yeah, and then there is another theory that it was made by giants for giants. 
What do you think about that? <laughs> yeah, it's cups for giants. Well, I, I, I'm going to be in Los Angeles this weekend for the Conscious Life Expo. And I'm yeah. doing my presentation on Sunday called the, uh, um, the Mystery of the Megaliths and the Giants of Prehistory. And there is a connection. Most megalithic sites around the world are associated with the giants being the builders of these locations. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting that the plane of jars is the same way. Uh, it even tells the uh, story in the museum, as well as being a, a haunted site. A, a lot of locals to this day try to avoid going there. They think it's it's uh, the ancestral burial grounds, and it pretty much is. So basically what the plane of jars is, is a, is a big necropolis uh, with hundreds and hundreds of people buried there around the jars and some of the cremations. And they were buried with funerary objects, beads and uh, ironwares and pottery. So anytime you have burials with items, it shows that you, it's a very sophisticated culture yeah. Yeah. to believe in, in the afterlife and leaving items with the dead, similar to the way the Egyptians did it. Hmm. What about if uh, I'm just theorizing here, and uh, all I want to do is just to hear your comment. Uh, what if this actually was for giants thousands of years ago, and then the locals 500 BC to 500 uh, after they found them and said, "Wait a minute, this this." Could be used for a grave plot. So now we'll start using it for that. But what do you think? <laughs> well, I, that's the thing, Augie. You cannot carbon date megalithic stones. You can only determine the age yeah. based on the the way that they were carved. You see, and I saw the chip marks inside the some of the jars, especially the ones that had been blown apart, and you could see the bottom of them and. Uh, but you can't carbon date, so you're right. They they could yeah. have been older. They could have been used for different causes, and this is also a common characteristic in megalithic sites that subsequent generations, different cultures even, would use the foundation, for example, in the Peruvian city of Oye Titambo, which Brian Forrester the archaeologist who we were there with on a, a tour five years ago before I went down to Antarctica, he said that Oyetetambo is the oldest continuously inhabited site in the world. Really? So, yeah, and, and you can see the old, giant, really well-built megalithic foundations and then Incan, the less-than-perfect uh, uh, creations on top, and then even the Spanish, even less perfect constructions on top of that. So it's yeah. almost like the whole art of building in megalithic uh, stone degraded or devolved over time, and the the best examples are the oldest examples. Yeah, these jars then is just as mystical as the. Uh... The perfectly round stones uh, down in uh, Costa Rica. Yeah. Yep. That's a big mystery, too. Yeah. Nobody, nobody really knows. 
there's just right. theory about where do they come from, who did it, and I guess maybe we'll never know. <laughs> or maybe we will someday. Yeah, maybe we will. Maybe we'll. Some alien yeah. group will come down and say, hey, those were ours. That was a ball bearing for our mothership. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, now these jars, how many did you say they were of those? They are a bunch. So, yeah. So remaining, there are 1,325. But back in the day, there were many thousands. Uh, but like I said, many were destroyed during the Indochina Wars and these Chinese raids that had happened uh, centuries ago, uh, just looking for treasure and breaking them apart to see if there was anything they could find. Um, and only recently, in 2019, did the whole site be recognized by UNESCO as a World Heritage Site. So now, of course, they're offered protection but the other problem was the encroaching development from the town of Fonsavin, because the original town of Ungsing Mung, Mung An, I'm not pronouncing that right, but it, it's also the name of the plateau where it's at. Um, that town was completely obliterated. That was the capital of the province uh, during the bombing campaign and the secret war in Laos. So they had to move the capital to Fonsavin, where my bus uh, dropped me off. And it was just a few kilometers away from the Plain of Jars. And UNESCO built a really nice museum there, information center, and then you can just walk to the site and spend all day there. I was there during Chinese New Year's, and so uh, it was pretty crowded at times. And But people would come and go, and... Um, I walked a little bit further outside the site and found a couple other jar locations, not right there. So that's what's so amazing about it is, is they're just all over the place. Mm -hmm. <laughs> over a thousand of these, these megalithic jars in this one location. Now, I'm wondering, though, if you, let's say some of them are three meters tall. The biggest uh, one. Yeah, the, or let's say two. Let's say two meters tall. And then they are much yeah, wider than that. About two meters in circumference as well. Yeah, okay. What then? Were they hollowed out stones or were they formed, do you think? If they had to hollow out the stone, that had to be a pretty doggone big stone to start with. How did they move stuff like that? They must have done what they did in maybe... Uh, other places where we have these big stones. And that's exactly the big mystery of the Plain of Jars is how they moved many ton stones from the quarries, which they have identified where the stones were taken from, but how they moved them through dense jungle foliage up and through uh, valleys and over rivers and creeks. And then to this uh, to these sites where they were they were left, it's anyone's guess. And the museum even said so. Nobody knows how they were moved because they're so big and so heavy. And whether they were carved on site at the quarry or carved once they got to the plain of jars, but it was clearly a wealthy culture 
that would be able to commission these jars uh, for the deceased. And other archaeologists have examined the site, and they would agree with the archaeologist uh, Kolani that they were used in a second burial process, because some of them were found with some grave items in them. Uh, but more importantly, the um, stacked, very meticulously placed bones which were not, would, would not be from a burial. Usually a burial, a person just laying there and the, the bones are found the way they were laid. But these were stacked uh, bones mm. suggesting the second burial process. Yeah. Yeah, I know there are other cultures that also, also did that. They, uh, they waited years until it was the meat was gone, and then they took the bone and assembled it, and they put it in a place where you could actually go and visit the person. Yep. <laughs> that, what a way that's to... why it's uh, yeah the best the best estimate is that the plain of jars was was a giant necropolis to the wealthy uh, influential people in the community because the commoners were just cremated and they found the remains of the cremations and in the cave there. And um, it's, it's a real beautiful area. I got to say, uh, including there are hot springs near there and uh, a giant Buddhist monastery with a big golden Buddha that you can see from the plain of jars. And mm -hmm. as I was uh, exploring around and traveling through the town of phone and I'd always look back and there's the Buddha head. It's, it's like, positioned yeah. up on this high plateau that it was looking out over everywhere like all right lord buddha keep an eye on my journey <laughs> mm. yeah the, the that area is so full of treasures and uh, even a uh, little further i guess into gobekli tepe they have I don't know if they have any of these uh, jars there but man some of the buildings that we have seen they couldn't be built today. Hmm. They, no. um, and and that's yeah. true with most megalithic sites around the world, Agi. Uh, the site in Baalbek, Lebanon, has such massive stones, and some of them are still in the quarry, that there's not a crane in the world today that could lift and move the size yeah. of those megalithic stones. So I'd say clearly we're dealing with kind of a with a with an ancient science that has been lost, and uh, that's the big mystery of these megaliths. Yeah, and I think in uh, Baalbek, I think the I'm taking this from memory, but I think one of the biggest stones there is 1,100 tons. And that is partially buried in the ground, sitting at an angle like this. So it looks like something was moving it, and then they didn't move it any further. It was just laying there. Man, that's... How do you move stuff like that? I, there is... Years and years ago, there was a movie clip that was floating around in Scandinavia and between Norway and Sweden. There was a Swedish explorer that went to Tibet, and they had a stone, a flat stone they wanted to move from the ground all the way up into a shelf 
up in the uh, on the, in the mountain there. No, it's just kind of straight up or a little forward. And they had people around there with flutes and music instruments. And on the movie footage, you could see the stone lifting off and moving right up into where they wanted it. You right. probably heard you probably heard about that one because I am. That In fact, was uh, yeah. There was a Swedish doctor named Dr. Jarl who uh, went to Tibet in the 1930s and um one of the the high lamas became ill and he was summoned to come back to use uh, some western medicine and he helped the lama out and they said well we would like to repay the favor and we want to show you a few things about what we're able to do and dr jarl drew the diagrams of these musical ceremonies where they would have one row of trumpeteers, the Tibetan trumpets, another row of drummers, and then a third row, all shaped in a horseshoe formation with a megalithic stone right in the middle. And they would get the music going to such a high pitch, cacophony of sound, that the boulder would start shaking, trembling, and then the monks would all look up at the same moment. So there were there was also there was also a mental process in moving these megaliths. The stone would then lift up and then go over to a cliff ledge, and then it would rest. So they were using a form of auditive levitation to move these megaliths. And Dr. Jarl drew pictures of how they did it in his journal. And I've reproduced those pictures in my book, Future Esoteric, in mm -hmm. the uh, Lost Sciences chapter, uh, describing how they did it. And it's quite amazing that there was this lost science. And, and I do believe that's how most of these megalithic structures were moved, was a form of auditive levitation that could render these very heavy stones weightless. And this is what's known as a resonant frequency, that everything around us, including ourselves, everything has a resonant frequency. And if you are able to match that resonant frequency, you can alter matter. So a good example yeah. is how an opera singer can shatter a wine glass with her voice. Yeah, That's just frequency and yeah. auditive uh, changes to a material item. Yeah, that's phenomenal. And when you think about that 1,100-ton uh, stone, I'm not so sure if it makes any difference how big or how heavy the stone is. If it is subjected to this high-pitched sound, it may work on any stone. So maybe that's how they move them at Baalbek, too. Yeah. Yep, I would say uh, it's really the only logical explanation because we don't even have a crane in the world today that could move those blocks. Well, how'd they move them? And place them precisely on top of other megalithic blocks 
with other megalithic blocks on top of them. So uh, the mystery just continues to unfold. And of course, in Peru, they're just everywhere. It's it's the densest collection of megalithic ruins in the world. Uh, And the sacred valley of Peru is just chock full of them. We're driving up to uh, go see the the site above Cuzco called Sacsayhuaman. And on the road up, there's a couple megalithic sites. And people don't even bat an eye. You don't even see people there. You take one of those sites that, that nobody really pays much attention to, and you put it, say, in North America, it would be the biggest national park for miles around. Because um, yeah. there's so many of them. It's just quite amazing. So they're, they're not actually, there had to have been a high-tech culture that once existed in these locations with this technology to do it. And I would say that, that, that it was a world culture and they were sharing their information and their knowledge because so many of these megaliths, as well as some of the giants are very similar uh, in different locations. And by giants, I mean, these elongated skulls that have been found around the world. And incidentally, Many of them were buried at, around, or near the megalithic sites. So it kind of shows that they were the ones that constructed them. Could very well be, and maybe even bigger ones too. And uh, what do you think? There's another school of thought on the uh, the stone walls in uh, South America and Central America when they have the really oddball shapes to some of these stones, but they fit together perfect. Oh yeah. What what if they had a way to make the stones soft by sound so that they can fit them together closer because you couldn't even put a I mean a hair or a credit card between those stones. Still to this day. We tried. And and I was on this trip five years ago with uh Nassim Harriman, and he is this uh physicist who's making really great strides in in uh, the new physics science and he was explaining how they were doing experiments in a laboratory using a process called cold plasma and they were able to uh as you described soften the stone not melt it not liquefy it but just soften it enough and indeed when you look at some of these megaliths how these incredible angles, some at a V angle, and every block is perfectly fitted together and you can't even put a piece of paper in there. And they also have these these knobs that come out at the bottom. So it's like the stone was softening and and a couple locations popped out these knobs as they were drying. And uh, this is how the megaliths were formed using some another kind of lost science to create these megaliths. Yeah. And then I uh, I also, I, I think I even read that in your book, where probably uh, where it said that the, some of the elders of the Mayans, they said that the Mayan pyramids, they were already there when the Mayans came. Mm. So there was a previous civilization that built some of those pyramids. Yeah, indeed. And uh, the pyramids are another example of a lost science that went into building them. 
you know, uh, about two decades ago, the Japanese tried to build a much smaller scale version of the Great Pyramid of Egypt, and they failed miserably. They couldn't even complete it. And that's using modern cranes and building techniques and stone cutting tools. And they couldn't even complete it. It was so yeah. hard. So uh, it just goes to show that the more you look into these megalithic sites and the, and the science and technology that went into building them, the more of a mystery they really become. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, it's amazing what uh, they have covered up for us. Because one good thing, though, when it comes to giants is that uh, a, a few years ago, the uh, Smithsonian Institute were sued. And they ended up in the Supreme Court. And the suit was all about that they have hidden away giant skeletons and destroyed giant skeletons. So the mm -hmm. Supreme Court ordered them that if you write to the Supreme Court, uh, the, uh, the, the uh, museum, they will have to give you the records of certain, whichever one you ask for, uh, of the uh, giant skeletons. Because... I mean, 100 years ago, 120 years ago, the newspapers were, they were, had articles about giant, 10 foot, 12 foot tall giants that were found. But uh, Smithsonian came and took them to take care, make sure that they are safe. Sure. But we can't write to Smithsonian and get some of that information. No, we can't. In my book, Beyond Esoteric, I have a chapter called uh, the the human origins that have been kept from the human race, suppressed human origins chapter. And in it, I have a, I, I write about a dig that took place at Lake Delavan, Wisconsin, not too far away from where I grew up. There's these beautiful lakes in Southern Wisconsin that were all carved in the last Wisconsin glaciation period. And, in some of them are found these remains of giants. So this team of scientists, true archaeologists, came out from Beloit College, southern Wisconsin, and they were doing a totally professional dig in the 1930s. And it started to make local headlines, and then it finally got to uh, New York Times and other larger outlets that these giants were being uncovered at Lake Delavan. Well, then the Smithsonian Institute came out and kind of like the FBI flipping their card and saying, oh, we'll take over here. We outrank you guys. And they said, well, hold, hold on a minute. Now, we've done a lot of work here. We, we are very vested into this dig. Uh, we want to know what the findings are. So, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll tell you. We're just going to take your bones and grave artifacts and take them back to uh, Washington, D.C. with us, and we'll let you know. So the archaeologist sure. followed up, <laughs> and lo and behold, I say, we don't know what you're talking about. We don't have any yeah. giant bones here. They don't exist. So yeah, this, this bones? is known as Smithsonian <laughs> Gate, that they will actively take the bones and the artifacts and just dump them in the Atlantic Ocean. And there are many different uh, stories of that happening. Yeah. That's almost criminal. 
Yeah, uh, almost. No, yeah. it is criminal. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think so. But um, there's, you know, these giants, uh, there's talk about the German giants. That actually was um, the front line of the Roman uh, war machine sometimes in their scrimmages. And mm. what, you, what you also see that there are giants all over the place. You have them in tallest um, talk of them in China and the Middle East and South America, and they've been. They must have been a very large race of those giants. From mm. from I, I read from somebody that uh, there was uh, I think it was down in the, um, the very southern tip of South America. He said that these giants were the ones that were there. They were very friendly. And they were not as warlike and aggressive as, uh, you know, us white guys when we came down there. So they did away with them. Mm. They they did away with the giants because the giants didn't really know how to defend themselves. Right. And especially in the age of gunpowder and bullets and artillery, well, <laughs> a bigger target gets yeah. taken down a lot easier. Hmm. And then we have the Egyptian artifacts that I know have been found in Illinois and also up in uh, Nevada and other places, probably. Well, the Grand Canyon. Yeah. The the very famous uh, Kincaid expedition, which was on the front page of the Arizona Gazette in 1909, finding these caves uh, all through this one area on the Crystal Creek section uh, where it meets the Grand Canyon, Colorado River. And the Kincaid expedition was the second expedition after John Wesley Powell was the first expedition to go through the Colorado River the whole way. And he must have seen the entrance to the cave and tipped off Kincaid, who then probably built a ladder to get up to the cave and then they described in this article in the Arizona Gazette that they had found these uh, giant mummies, a whole bunch of artifacts, a, a Buddha-like statue. They said uh, Far East. They didn't say specifically Egyptian, but some of the descriptions have led a lot of people to believe that what they were talking about were descriptions uh, of giants. So they. Um, then the Kincaid expedition, it was, it was known they made it out to Yuma, Arizona. When they came out, then uh, this this article ran, and that was the last anybody ever heard of it. Now, I've had some researchers who've gone out there, and we're still on the lookout for any kind of entrance or cave into this system, which is on the um, the North Rim, about midway through the Grand Canyon, I, I know pretty accurately where it's located. And I did a 21-trip raft mm. voyage down the Grand Canyon. It's quite a fascinating uh, excursion. But, of course, we weren't allowed to go and do the side trips that I would have liked to have done. Yeah, But uh, the Grand Canyon has this very vast network of caves. And uh, Dr. Michael Salas whistleblower jp has described 
recently, within a year, that um, that he was in the cave, and it's, indeed there are still many artifacts remaining there, um, and that this cave system is expansive. And I remember hearing about um, the Army Corps of Engineers also uh, looking into how big the cave system was, and they were dropping um, smoke bombs into them to see where the smoke would come up. And they came up 30 miles away in the town of Kanab, Utah. So it's just huge how big the cave system is. Uh, so the Grand Canyon is another one of these great mysteries with giants and ancient artifacts and the uh, emergence point of the Hopi people at a location called the Sipapu, which is just upriver on the little Colorado River, about four miles up. And again, I wasn't able to go check it out, but I know where it is. And I've looked at it on Google Earth and some of these other locations and it's just fascinating. The other thing yeah. that very interesting, Augie, that would lead some of these ancient cultures to go there is that they were mining gold. And there are old newspaper articles right before Grand Canyon became a national park of a gold mining operation in the Marble Canyon section of the Grand Canyon. That's right close to uh, Lake Powell and Page, Arizona. And I, I was on with Michael Sala on Expo Politics Today about a year ago, and I we showed some of these uh, newspaper articles. So when you can't make sense of a story, follow the money. And in this case, follow the gold. And if there's gold yeah. mine, uh, look, to King Tut's uh, death mask, pure gold. The Egyptians yeah. were fascinated with pure gold. They even called it the land of punt a faraway place where they would go to collect their gold. And maybe that was the Grand Canyon. Should be. Because we know they were traveling across the ocean. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. We have the evidence. And in fact, I, I had a friend here in Tucson that uh, did a lot of digging up in the Grand Canyon in the 1960s. He was probably about 85 when he uh, went home, died. And uh, I think that he said that he, him and three or four other friends, they went up there but while they still could go into it. I think they don't even let you go in there now. But he found a plate which was about uh, not quite a foot long, but not a, about a half a foot tall. And that had hieroglyphic signs on it. He had it at his home, and I saw it. So I know there is stuff up there that was originated probably in Egypt or was created here on the basis of the language that they used over there in Egypt. Yep. Thousands of years ago. Thousands of years ago. So my talk at uh, the Conscious Life Expo this weekend, I show slides from ancient Egypt and you'd be amazed how many hieroglyphs and pictographic panels show the giants living among puny little humans. The humans were their servants. And isn't it interesting, the word Lord, how we hear the word Lord so much still 
to this day that God is the Lord. We've got landlords in England. They have the House of Lords. It's just these these uh, these overlords that are yeah. controlling all of us little puny humans. I think the the word Lord is a throwback from when the giants once uh, controlled the world. Do you remember that uh, the the World Bank whistleblower named Karen Hudez? She oh, yeah, about yeah. Mm-hmm. years yep. ago, yeah, she she passed away in October 2022. But her her whistleblowing testimony of the world of elite banking. She said that there were two systems in banking, and the the system that really calls the shots was a different kind of human, that there were these elongated, giant-like beings that live here on Earth, and they don't want to be known. They don't want to be seen. They're these uh, very elite families. So I would propose that there is still a lineage of some of these elongated giants that live amongst us to this day. In fact, I'll show photos of it in my presentation hmm. of uh, leaked photos of elongated, even the Rothschilds, Jacob Rothschild is an elongated skull. He's got a big, huge cavity right in the back of his head. And here's yes. the thing with elongated skulls. You can't do cranial deformation. You cannot wrap a, a skull and increase the brain size. You can't do it. You can move what you have around, but you cannot increase the size of the brain. Yeah. Besides, those skulls, which are on display in Peru, there's a whole museum with a dozen or more of them in Paracas, Peru. And we went to a museum in the Sacred Valley that had uh, a giant on display, a giant skull, whose head was as big as the body. It was an adolescent. Wow. <laughs> They don't have a central suture, the crack in the middle of our forehead. Their eye sockets are 30% bigger. And the entry point of the spine is also 30% bigger. So it would stand to reason. Bigger head, bigger body, bigger being. They're very human-like, but they're not human. And so this is why this is an esoteric subject. This is why we didn't learn about this in history. Because they don't want the lords to be known the real rulers, Uh, but it's written about in the Bible, the Anunnaki and the Nephilim um, that mated with earth women and and had these hybridized uh, offspring, which I think are these offspring of the giants. We know the Anunnaki were a lot taller. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm not so sure exactly how tall, but probably 10 to 12 foot tall. Probably. From, from what it looks like on the uh, old carvings, you know? Yeah. Hmm. Well, gosh, uh, I don't know. Now, let uh, also let us, uh, before we get too far, close to the end, let us know also where we can find your books and what you're going to do with your lectures coming up. Yeah, sure. Uh, you want to find out my conference schedule? I'm speaking uh, about a dozen different conferences confirmed. Go to bradolson.com and it's right there on the top. You can click on the link to my conference schedule and see where I'm going to be. Um, 
And my books are available at cccpublishing.com, including other authors that we publish, like Michael Jaco, Leo Lyons-Agami, and Laura Eisenhower's brand new book, Awakening the Truth Frequency, is just shipping from the printer and is being released as we speak. So uh, I I love working in the publishing field and uh, get involved with some really great projects. And uh, I'm going to come out with a second edition to Beyond Esoteric Mm -hmm. and my other books there too. So if anybody wants a signed copy of of one of my books, that uh, cccpublishing.com is the place to go for that. But all our books are distributed nationwide. You can find them in independent bookstores or on that online retailer named after a South American river. <laughs> have you thought about any other languages for the books? Oh, I have. Uh, several of our books have been published in other languages. Oh. Um, Future Esoteric is coming out in the Bulgarian language. Uh, they had just really? translated modern Esoteric too. Yeah, yeah. Real beautiful hardbound copies. They send me uh, versions of them. And uh, other authors, Leo Zagami, Invisible Master Book, got republished in Bulgarian, and Lon Milo Duquette in several languages, and some of mine in other languages too. So, yeah, it's they they come along, and uh, they usually uh, contact me. I've tried on several occasions to reach mm-hmm. foreign publishers, but it's much easier when they come to you. Yeah, and, uh, when are you going? Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to tell you one more thing is uh, we are putting out a proposal right now for a return trip to Antarctica with a uh, venture capital group called vccross.com to do a documentary about going down to Antarctica to some of these locations that I've researched and would love to... uh, Go back, go down there too. Check these places out. the The pyramid poking out of the ice. I know exactly where that is, and I've got a a tour organization group that will take us there. It's just the money to get us there. But with a film crew, I think it would be a fascinating film. And oh, also want to go to the New Schwabenland area and research um, the Nazi base down there and see if we can get any information about that. So vccross.com is the name of the company that's that's raising the capital and okay. a prospectus about our film project down there. That sounds really interesting. What kind of permits do you have to do go down there? I know there are some restricted areas or prohibited areas even. But uh, are you have you looked into any of that yet? Yeah, I have and this group that does expeditions down there pretty much said, look, we can get you where you want to go. It's going to cost, but uh, they did not indicate that the places that I would like to go were off limits. Now we would have to get some support from some of the research bases down there uh, as well as air and ground transportation to move around. And of course, you got to bring in all your supplies. But uh, boy, what a fascinating documentary that would be if. Oh, man. Or a TV series. 
Yeah. How many people are you thinking of taking on that one? Uh, it remains to be seen, but probably a dozen, maybe eight, eight or nine or ten, I'm thinking. Uh, we'll have to price all that out once we know uh, we have the financing to do it. Oh, that sounds interesting. Yeah. yeah. And now, when are you going to be in Sedona? That's kind of up yeah, the road so from me. That's yeah, coming up in five weeks, Augie. You should come on up. For uh, Suzanne Ross is a producer of the Sedona Ascension Retreat Conference, and she and I have a film project that we're putting together called Operation New Earth. O N E, and and uh, I'm talking about the dozen sites around the world <clears throat> that correspond with the uh, chakras in the body. So we're going to do a presentation on that TV show wow. Wow. Uh, conference. Well, that sounds interesting, too. The New Earth, yeah, there's a lot of talk about that these days. And uh, we're going to have one. Uh, we don't yeah, we exactly, will. we don't know what it's going to look like yet, maybe. but. Uh, it is coming because you can see the raising of consciousness in every corner of the world. And people are waking up. And when they wake up, uh, just maybe a little more and find out that I've been screwed all my life, they're going to say, wait a minute, uh, we're not going to have this anymore. Mm. It's coming. So, uh, yep. I don't know. It sure is. And then in July, I'm going to be speaking at the big MUFON Symposium in Dallas, Texas, Fort Worth. And I'll be presenting my uh, Hidden Anomalies of Antarctica presentation. They want me to do that, which uh, I was down there exactly five years ago on a sailboat to uh, the Palmer Peninsula. So that'll be a, a huge audience. I think a thousand people will be at that one. Um, and also going to be on a panel for that. Plus, uh, gosh, uh, top of my head, I'll be, oh, the Journey of Truth. That's a great conference in Grafton, Illinois. That'll be in May. Uh, then um, I'm going to another conference in April for the full solar eclipse in Texas. Mm -hmm. Two conferences in Texas this year. And um, the Mount Shasta Summer Conference in July is a real good one be speaking at that and um on my website bradolson.com some of them have promo codes so for example the mount jazz summer conference you type in my name brad and you get a, a discount on the ticket so check out that website if, if you want to come to some of my conferences and i always bring my books so yeah. i'll have books to sign for people Sounds at all good. these shows well you're busy staying busy Staying out of trouble, going up skiing yeah. today, so getting my exercise and just uh, <laughs> enjoying life. That's what it's all about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we don't have any snow in Tucson, so I guess you're going to have to do the skiing for <laughs> us. Live vicariously through me. We're yeah. fellow Scandinavians. <laughs> well, we're getting down to the end here, so uh, I sure thank you very much for being with us. and. Uh, We'll do this again some other time. Boy, oh boy, would I like to do a show with you after you come back from Austro uh, Antarctica. 
Well, that's, that's probably a couple years off at the very well, least. So, but we'll 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 talk again uh, before then, yeah. I'm sure. And it's always a pleasure to speak with you, Aggie. Thanks for having me on again. Uh, thank you very much for being with us, and uh, for all of you out there listening. We'll be back next week with another great show for you. And in the meantime, be good to each other.